There's something curious about this broadcast. This is Moscow. This is Moscow Corner. On the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. All Moscow is waiting to give a hero's welcome to the world's first spaceman, Major Gagarin of the Soviet Air Force. And to begin the bulletin, here's a Moscow recording of his voice speaking to Russian scientists as he went through space. Major Gagarin said that the flight was going on successfully, normal, visibility was good, and that he himself was feeling good as well. Major Gagarin was sent up in his four and a half ton spaceship from somewhere in the Soviet Union, soon after seven o'clock this morning our time. And about 148 minutes later, he was brought down again after his 25,000 mile an hour flight around the Earth at heights ranging between 105 and 181 miles. As he looked down on the Earth from the loneliness of space, he streaked across Asia, Africa and South America, constantly checking his instruments and controlling the pitch and roll of the ship by firing small correcting rockets. During his flight, his reactions were checked by radio and television devices. When he got down, Major Gagarin said in a message to Mr. Khrushchev, the landing was normal. I feel well. I have no injuries or bruises. When he was told the momentous news in Ottawa, Mr. Macmillan said, it's a very notable achievement. I'm sending a message of congratulation to Mr. Khrushchev. The Prime Minister is now flying home after his three-week tour of the West Indies, the United States and Canada. President Kennedy, too, has sent congratulations to the Soviet Union. In New York, all-night radios broadcast the news in special news flashes and the New York Times carried in its last editions a treble headline. Soviet launches a man into orbit, maintains radio contact with him, first human in space feels well. The director of the National Space Agency, Mr. James Webb, called the flight a splendid achievement, adding that he hoped the Russians would make available to scientists the information they gained from the experiment. Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. It's special because we're joining with others all over the world to take part in a global space party called Yuri's Night. At the beginning of the show you heard an extract from a BBC Home Service news bulletin from April 12, 1961, the historic moment when Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. Now, this podcast wouldn't be the same without my regular co-host John Berger, which is quite lucky really because he's joining me from across the pond in Pennsylvania. Happy Yuri's Night, John. Hello, happy Yuri's Night to you. How's it going? It's going. Same stuff, different day. You know how it is. Yeah, yeah. I know you've got a lot of work on because you've got a prototype to to get ready for uh, an event that uh, you're going to. Back to PAX East. Has there been any announcements yet of what's going on with that? No, not really. I mean, it's hard to tell what's going on. From what I can tell, the big names aren't going to be there, like Sony, uh, Nintendo, 
I don't think Microsoft's going to be there either, which is kind of weird. But, I mean, that could be a good thing because if it's like last time, that means there's going to be a lot more floor space for the indie developers, which is kind of what our little niche is. Yeah, that works out well for us. Just going to have to wait and find out. You know, worse comes yeah. to worse, and it's if it's not as busy as we'd like, the people I'm going with have said, hey, you know, we'll go around and just see Boston. Because we, we never really have a chance to go there. Because it's as I call it, it's a busy vacation. It's not mm-hmm. a relaxing vacation. So if that means uh, that PAX isn't what it used to be, and we get a little bit of extra time to just waltz around Boston, then uh, so be it. Now, usually at this point, I would tell you a little bit more about Yuri's Night, but there is someone who knows a lot more about the event than us. Hello, and welcome to Yuri's Night. Um, my name is Loretta Whitesides. I'm a future astronaut at Virgin Galactic. I'm the founder of Yuri's Night. We're super excited. We kicked off this party in 2001. At the time, we said it was a party we wanted to be celebrated in 10,000 years in the future, a holiday that's still relevant to humanity, even when we're scattered among 12 different star systems. This event celebrates the anniversary of Yuri Gagarin, the first human to go into space, April 12, 1961. And also, 20 years later to the day, the United States had the first space shuttle flight takeoff, April 12, 1981. And so it's a conjunction of two extraordinary space anniversaries, and we like to use Yuri's night to celebrate the power of space to bring the world together. So that's what we're about. That's what we encourage people around the world to celebrate this day and to help unify our little planet here. And so we're super excited to have the UK involved and doing your part. There's a bunch of parties in Japan, in the Antarctica, as well as Africa and throughout the world. So this really is a global celebration. We're excited that the UN has declared this International uh, Human Space Flight Day. And I just get moved just thinking about what we're capable of as a species when we put aside our egos and do what's best for the future of of our cosmos. And I am really passionate and dedicated to getting everyone in the space community together and feeling a a part of uh, something bigger than themselves and feeling heard and known and appreciated. And I challenge you to take on being the person you've always wanted to be because there's something that you came to Earth to do and hopefully that's something to do with space. Maybe it doesn't. And I challenge you to do it because if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. And we all need to step up and start being crew of Spaceship Earth. Thanks for being part of this journey. Thanks for being part of this community. And thank you so much for your support. And let's rock the planet. Thanks, Loretta. TGP Nominal's annual Yuri's Night podcast is registered as an official virtual event. So if you're joining us from yurisnight.net, a very warm welcome to you all. And I hope you'll come back and join us in the future. Now it's time for a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by one of our regular contributors. Cumulus clouds all around. Everything's so beautiful. It's wonderful. I'm Brian May. In 1961, a 27-year-old Yuri Gagarin became the first man ever to go out into space. He spent 108 minutes circling the Earth, and by doing so, extended the hand of man towards the stars, but he looked back to his home planet and he said, and I quote, circling the earth in my orbital spaceship, I marveled at the beauty of our own planet. People of the world, let us safeguard and enhance this beauty, not destroy it. I say to you, keep this in mind as we reach out and we thrill to the exploration we're able to undertake into the cosmos. Let us remember that first we need to learn the lessons that will enable us 
to take care of our own beautiful planet. Let us guard its beauty, as Yuri Gagarin says, let us guard its biodiversity. And I put it to you, we can do more than that. We can treasure the lives and the dignity of every creature on this planet because we're all created equal, right? So let's think about it and let's make a planet that we can be proud of before we colonize the rest of the universe. God bless you. Have a wonderful event. Yuri's night is tonight. We are, by nature, explorers. The same curiosity that sends us to the stars at the speed of thought urges us to go there in reality. And whenever we make a great new leap, we elevate humanity, bring people and nations together, usher in new discoveries, and new technologies. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more and what is in sight, behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal's Yuri's Night Podcast. At the beginning of every month, we usually launch our sky guide into the podosphere. We wanted to give visitors from yurisnight.net the opportunity to experience it. The sky guide is a collaboration between TGP Nominal and the awesome charity called UK Astronomy. UK Astronomy's founder, Ross Hockham BCAE, teaches schools, clubs, organisations about the universe in his spare time when he's not being a firefighter. And if I turn this fader up, we should have Ross on the line to advise us what to look for in April. Ross, how are you doing, sir? Very well, bro. I thought you were going to say we should have an April's fall <laughs> online. <laughs> Just popped into my head then. I don't know why when he said that. But yes, here I am. So how are you doing? Very good, yeah, very well. Unfortunately, as you know, I've still got this niggly cough that just won't go away. The magic of editing, you won't know it's there. Yeah, it'll be magic. You'll, you'll, fit, you'll won't even hear it, hopefully. But yeah, apart from that, all going well. Lots of events going on. Sun shining. It's really good at the moment. Yeah. Um, talking of which, as we record this, you actually had quite a big event last night, didn't you? So that was, uh, so yeah, Slow House. I love Slow House. One of my favourites, I love it. We've got a couple more in October, so if you miss that and you're local to Milton Keynes, we will be up in Buckinghamshire in October doing it again. The girls that run it are awesome. You know, we had the volunteers come along. We had Andy Smith, astrophotographer, really good. He brought all his stuff, showed people how to do it, lots of his pictures. Nigel, bless him, he's an amateur astronomer, comes along with his Dobsonian, sticks it on a table and chats to people and shows them stuff. So we're really lucky. Nice, clear sky. And we also had some of our friends turn up. They didn't, they didn't even tell us. And they booked under alter egos as well. 
<laughs> so we didn't even know they were turning up and then they were just like hi I was like uh oh I've got to make this good then <laughs> but yeah lovely event really really cool really enjoyed it but it's always a good event at Stowe House anyway because it's such a historic building and, and very regal place to uh, carry out a, an astronomy event isn't it yeah just having it as a backdrop is just wow so people and they as they enter are already wowed by it and then it's got lovely south-facing garden as well so that's perfect for stargazing where all the things are oh yeah that's for sure because the actual whole path all the way up there there's a, there's a long road and then there's like a marble arch on a hill isn't there yeah you go straight up to that and it's almost like a picturesque you look through the marble arch to see the house in the background so it's all about showmanship wasn't it yeah it is a fantastic looking building and having the scopes outside and um, the talks inside it looks a great event I haven't actually been to one I do intend to come to one of your Stowhouse events but I will put some photos of it in the show notes so that you can all have a look at what we're going on about yeah yeah they all got put on Facebook and that and I think when I was in doing the talk Andy and Nigel and that were outside taking some good pictures for us so yeah it looks fantastic so if you want to come in in October, I'm sure Mark can uh, join us one day. Yeah, I hope to. And we'll show you the skies, hopefully. We've been quite lucky. Stowe House is usually pretty good. The skies, for some reason, I think we've only had one night where it's been kind of cloudy. But even then, the moon was up, so we could see at least see the moon. Yeah. So it's been pretty good luck so far. The last few days have been really good for uh, astronomy anyway. So hopefully, come October which will be when the night skies will be closing in again, so it'll be even better for it. Yep, we're just reaching sort of the end of the season now, aren't we, because the clocks have now moved, Mm -hmm. which we hate. (laughs) (laughs) And then we go back to October when it all gets dark again. They were talking about getting rid of it at some point, but I think there's other things on their mind now going on in the world. Yeah, yeah. More important than, oh, let's change the clocks again, just because Ross and Mark don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ross, what have we got in store for April? Well, as it's April, that officially means one thing. It's British summertime. So that means that each day the sun is going to be rising a couple of minutes earlier and then setting a couple of minutes later. So the days are going to be getting longer and longer as the month goes on. Not really good for stargazing because it means you have to stay out later. And uh, (laughs) usually they say there's only an hour or two of actual real darkness. Pretty much on the first of the month, the sun rises at around about 6.38 a.m., then it's going to set at about 7.37pm, give or take where you are. And by the end of the month, we're going to have like a, an extra full hour of daylight. So it's going to be rising at 5.36 and then setting at 8.26. So at the moment, most of the planets are up in the morning sky. So this might actually help us to get a, a bit better view of them. So we start the month with a new moon, which is great. So it means it'd be out of the way for a while, which means it's great to go out and have a look at the sky and what you've got up. So Venus, Saturn and Mars, they all rise together in the morning around about 5.25am. So that's going to give us a lovely morning view about an hour or so before the sunrise. Jupiter, unfortunately, is pretty close to the sun. It's going to be creeping up throughout the month, so towards the end of the month we might get to see it. And unfortunately, Mercury is as well at the moment, and Neptune. So there's quite a few around the sun sort of hovering there. Mercury is going to creep up again in the afternoon towards the end of the month, but at the beginning, there's not really many of the planets to see. Uranus, again, it is up in sort of like the evening night sky but it is starting to close in on the sun and it's between sort of Aries and Cetus the constellations and it does set around 10pm so even that one that is the only one up isn't that great to see unfortunately but I do have loads more stuff and actually the morning sky is going to look really cool about halfway through the month so if we start on the 16th we have a nice full moon watch it rise up from the horizon it's always cool to see so around about 7.49 keep an eye out for it 
This one's known as the Pink Moon by the Native Americans after a species of early blooming wildflower, apparently, representing the spring growth, I'm guessing. All these sort of different names for it. The Sprouting Grass Moon, I'm guessing because obviously the grass sprouts at this time of year. The Egg Moon, because I'm guessing this is probably when the birds lay their eggs. And then the Fish Moon. But I think the Pink Moon sounds better, which is why everyone's jumping on it, because it looks, you know, sounds like it's going to be pink. Unfortunately, it's not. It's just going to be a normal full moon, but still cool to see. Move to the 22nd now. We've got a uh, minor meteor shower, so it's the Lyrids. They peak over the space of a few nights, really, but they're mainly active from the 14th to the 30th of April, but they're at their best on this date. So the 22nd is when they peak and at their best. They do say it could be a night either side of this as well, so it's definitely worth going out and having a look. Unfortunately, they are best viewed after midnight, as the area they radiate from doesn't climb up that high in the sky until midnight, really. So from midnight till dawn is probably your best time to have a peek, but you never know. Go out at the normal times and have a look up, you might see them. They radiate just to the right of the bright star Vega, and that's in the constellation of Lyra. And they peak at around 10 to 15 per hour. There is a quarter phased moon up, but it shouldn't interfere too much with seeing them, so hopefully you might see some of these bright streaks shooting across the sky, which is the Lyrids. On the 24th, now it's pretty much going to be something every day now, because it's all going to be happening in the morning sky, mostly. So if you go back to the morning planets, around about 5am, it's going to be low on the horizon, but you may get a chance to see four in sort of like a cool line in the morning sky, as Jupiter would have moved up towards Venus. So from whereabouts the sun's rising, you're going to get to see Jupiter, Venus, Mars, then Saturn. That's from left to right. It's going to be in a really cool celestial line in the morning, topped off by a crescent moon just further off to the right. So you get to see all this cool stuff in the morning sky. So it's probably worth getting up for five in the morning. I know it's early, but I might have a go if I'm not working. We move to the 25th. Again, pop back to the morning planets. They're going to be joined with a thin crescent moon. So the moon's moved towards them even more. The moon itself is now going to be just below Saturn. So hopefully you can spot the planet as well. So if we go to the 26th, the moon will have just moved past Mars. It's going to be a slightly harder spot, but it's still going to be possible. If you missed it the last few days, it was going to be just kind of below Mars. It's going to be creeping across as you go. So if we go to the 27th now, and this time Venus is going to be visited by the moon. It's going to be a tough spot because the sun is rising, so be careful. But you're going to see a slender moon with Venus just there, which will be really bright as she always is. On the 29th, Mercury has now whizzed past the sun and is going back up into the evening sky. So it was up in the morning last month, I believe, and now it's whizzed right past throughout this month and is going to go to its furthest point before it's about to start moving back towards the sun again. So it's whizzed right up and it's almost like stopping the sky for a little bit and then creep back towards the sun. So this is its greatest elongation. So the 29th is a really great time to see if you can spot the tiny planet. It is going to be kind of sitting there on its own because all the other planets are on the other side. So it'll be in the afternoon sky. And then last but not least, we've got the 30th. Now, in the morning sky again, Jupiter is going to have caught right up with Venus, and it's going to be actually really close to it in the morning sky. Venus to the right, Jupiter just to the left. So you might not be able to see Jupiter with your eye, depending on the light, because obviously the sun's coming up. And as I say, be careful when you're looking around that area. But because they're close in the morning sky, if you look at Venus with binoculars, you might be able to get Venus and Jupiter in the same field of view. So even if you can't see Jupiter by eye, you might be able to get it through binoculars as well. Steady hand and that sort of stuff. So loads and loads of planets in the morning, not really much in the evening. Well, I say there's not really much in the evening. You've got all the stars and nebulas and galaxies and stuff out there. So it's all about the morning planets at the moment this month, which is quite cool because morning has broken, as they say. Hello, I'm Chris Lintot. Happy Yuri's Night. Rock the planet. Right, so now time for the objects of the month. 
as I was just banging on about the morning planets, they are our naked eye object, because pretty much from the 20th of the month onwards, you should be able to see the morning planets by eye on the horizon, with the moon joining a few of them a few days later, a lovely celestial line of them to greet you around 5am. So pop out, see how many you can spot, watch as Jupiter catches up with Venus, watch the moon go underneath them all. But again, just be careful looking near the sun, but a really cool thing to see in the morning sky. So our binocular object. Now, if you find the bright star Vega, which can be seen quite easily, it's in the constellation Lyra, just above right, depending on the night, because it does move a little bit, so it's either above or right of it, is the constellation Hercules, the legendary hero. Now, here lies one of the best globular clusters you can see. So it's between two stars that make up the square of his body. I believe it's kind of on his left-hand side. It's M13, so if you've got an app, just chuck M13 on there. And between two stars, you'll see about halfway across from them, there's an awesome globular cluster. And this is like a clump of some of the oldest stars in the Milky Way. So if you get your binoculars, you should at first, as you're going across, start at one star, and then go down to the other one and kind of sweep the sky up and down. It's almost like a little spider web in space. Look for a little while longer, let your eyes sort of adjust a bit, and you should slowly be able to kind of make out some stars in there. And then there'll be more stars and more stars, and you'll see this web actually turns into like a glob of stars. So there's like thousands there that actually make up this cool cluster. If you've got a telescope as well, whack it on there afterwards, because it's amazing. It's really, really cool to see. So that's our binocular object of the month, M13 Globular Cluster onto the telescope object. Now I mentioned this place has a host of galaxies. So at midnight, go to the darkest sky you can find. It doesn't have to be, you know, amazingly dark or anything like that. I've spotted a few. You can't really see much in cities, unfortunately, because they are galaxies from miles or millions of miles away. So go wherever you can that's darker than out of town and use your telescope to look around the sort of gap between Virgo, Coma Berenses and that Leo. And you'll see it's the last star on Leo's tail, the Lion. There's a gap there in between all these three bits. And there is just like a host of galaxies. Some are quite easily to be seen. Others are going to take a bit of more time. You're going to need a bit of averted vision. If you look on an app and zoom in, you see hundreds there. But you're obviously not going to get to see all of them because some of them are really far away and faint and things like that. But there's so many there that I can't even name them all. So it's the Virgo supercluster. And it's a mass concentration of galaxies containing the Virgo cluster and the local group, which in turn contains us, the Milky Way, and Andromeda with it as well. And at least another sort of 100 galaxy groups and clusters all within this 110 million light year diameter area. So the best thing to do is maybe start on Leo's tail and just sweep your scope kind of to the left. Go down a little bit, sweep to the right, go down a bit, almost sort of like, what's that, Space Invaders. Where the Space Invader <laughs> game used to go along down, along down, keep doing that and then do the opposite, then go up again. And you should just see little fuzzy bits going through your scope and there'll be all these galaxies all over there. So good luck and hope you find some. I managed to see quite a few when I was in Charmouth a few years ago and there are some really cool ones. There. I know there's one called the Needle Galaxy, I believe, and that is amazing to see, especially in the dark sky. So happy hunting. I did remember to do an astrophotography object this month. I forgot this last time, so I have to apologize. It was in the notes. So our astrophotography object is the Markarian chain of galaxies. So it's slap bang in the middle of the group of galaxies we just spoke about. And this is like a string or chain of galaxies. When viewed from Earth, the galaxies lie along a, a smoothly curved line. It looks really cool. I haven't actually seen it myself through a telescope, but the pictures I've seen from people, it is amazing, all these galaxies there. Now, funnily enough, the first one who kind of discovered them was Charles Messier, who we spoke about last month. 
he discovered two of the galaxies, M84 and M86. So if you've got an app, that's a good starting point to find them there or a go-to telescope and go straight on there because if you're going to get pictures of galaxies, you're probably going to have a tracking scope and stuff like that. You can have a go with DSLR cameras. I hear they do a pretty good job as well. Discovered in 1781, they're located about 50 million to 55 million light years away, so quite far, and it really is an impressive sight. And the pics of it that I've seen in the Facebook group are absolutely stunning. So why not try your hand at snapping around this sort of area? And you never know, you might get this string of galaxies to wow your astro buddies with. And I, I'd love it, so I hope to see some more in our Facebook group of this chain of galaxies. So happy snapping. And uh, yeah, that's the end of April. Now Ross, not only is it Yuri's night, it's also your astronomy in April. Indeed. Which we've been talking about this off the air. Last year it was a, a huge event, mainly because, well, nobody could do anything. So it was a complete <laughs> online event. So there was a lot of things going on. Now, you've got it coming up again this year, but on a slightly smaller scale. Last year, I think, did we do something like there was 27 talks or online things? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, it nearly killed me. So <laughs> I decided this year we're going to throw a few more of the talks that we did last time because I know a lot of people missed them. So we're going to chuck them out again, especially there's one for like every day of the month, you like moon day, Sunday, explaining what they are and how they got there and stuff like that, which is quite cool. I believe there's a spring constellation one that our friend Richard J. Bartlett did. So I chucked that out again because it's going to be relevant now for how you can see the constellations and learn all about them. Uh, I'm hoping to do a few moon lives. So attaching my phone to my telescope and actually hitting live onto Facebook. And I'll hopefully be recording that as well. So then I can actually save it as a video for you where I'll be looking over the moon, some of the features, what you can see. So if you haven't got a telescope, you can just kick back with an iPad, watch it on Facebook and just listen to me drivel on about the moon. <laughs> Also, I'm hoping, what I really want to do now is because we're allowed out, I'm going to go out in sort of like the Buckingham area, which is my local area, like around about an hour's drive at the most, and just do like some free events on a night off. So if I've got a night off, it's a clear sky, I'm going to pop it in the Facebook group, pop it places and just say, right, I'm going out with the mobile observatory, the astrovan, spacecrafter, all the telescopes are in there. I'm going to go to this field. You're welcome to join me for a few hours of just chatting to each other, doing some stargazing, because that's what we're really about in UK astronomy, isn't it? We want to get people actually out looking up. And now we're allowed to. It means I don't have to do 27 talks <laughs> or arrange it all and try and get people to do it for me. So, yeah, so there's going to be a whole host of stuff. Nothing's really set in stone, so it's going to be quite chilled out. But, yeah, astronomy in April. Fingers crossed. Get out there, see the moon, do some stargazing, and actually get to meet some of you. For those people that are new to TGP Nominal, the Sky Guide also has a load of notes that accompany it on our show notes pages, which has diagrams of where to look for stars and planets and, and what have you, and extra links to find out more about the different planets and constellations and everything that goes along with it. We've only included from the 16th to the end of the month because obviously the dates before that have gone, but the Sky Guide will show you everything from the beginning of the month right to the end of the month in the show notes i'll also put links in the show notes to the uk astronomy events facebook page which will give you details of the upcoming events during the astronomy in april event as you know john the weather in the uk is not always best for stargazing <laughs> uh, which is a bit of a pain if you're hosting an astronomy event so uk astronomy are currently fundraising for an inflatable planetarium which as you can guess doesn't come cheap it's roughly about 39,000 pounds or 50,000 dollars 
they have raised just under £17,000 or $22,000. So if you would like to support UK Astronomy so that they can outreach further, they would be most grateful. I'll put links to the various ways that you can help in the show notes too. Right, it's time for another short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by our special guest. Hi, I'm Dr Maggie, and I work as a space scientist. And I'm very lucky because I love my job. Working in space gives you opportunities that are literally out of this world. Um, Through my career, I've worked on sort of um, the James Webb Space Telescope, the largest space telescope ever built. But I've also worked on Earth observation satellites that give us a better understanding of our planet. Space truly does cover it all. But there's a space here for you too. Many people think that as a space scientist uh, or, or working in the space industry, you have to be a rocket scientist. And that's so not true. The space industry is very diverse. We need people of all sorts of disciplines. If you think about it, in an industry, you need human resources, you need PR, you need finance, you need all these different people, legal, all coming together to make a company work. And it's just the same in space. So if you've always been reaching for the stars and looking out there, maybe there's a place in space for you. Do join us because we have a fantastic time. One of the things that um, I love about space is just the diversity, meeting people from other countries. Space is truly global, but space is truly thriving here in the UK. Over the last few years, the space industry has been booming here and we're diversifying and doing many different things. As a a black female scientist, when I tell people I'm a space scientist, they look uh, a little surprise sometimes but space is a global enterprise and it needs a diverse workforce and that workforce could include you do join us it's a lot of fun hello everyone this is steph evs of the youtube channel the stimulus one of the main reasons i started my channel was in the hopes of inspiring young people to pursue their interest in science technology engineering and math careers or stem careers and events like yuri's night are very important in achieving the same goal in this case promoting an interest in space exploration Yuri's Night is a celebration of the achievements of the past that will likely inspire the heroes of the future that will lead us out into the solar system. And that's why Yuri's Night helps rock the planet. Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their... My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. ...has dreamt of. Mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. We look back at the Earth and watch it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here, if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. An Irishman has won the world porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Go Houston, you're a go for landing, over. I got it there, go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy it. We're go, same type, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Beautiful, beautiful. 
magnificent ventilation. The next generation of explorers should not ever give up. off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal's Yuri's Night podcast. Now, we've been looking forward to having our special guest on the show for a long while, haven't we, John? Absolutely. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk to him. Yeah, we were supposed to be speaking to him at the beginning of the year, but because of work commitments, it wasn't possible. I thought it would be fantastic to include our chat with him in the Yuri's Night event. So without further ado, we are joined by Noah Petro from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, who is a lunar scientist. He's involved with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and he has many hats as well. Noah, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do. So first of all, thanks for, for having me on today. You know, I do whatever it takes to help disentangle our understanding of the plants in the solar system. So in one version of my job, I'm a project scientist for NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. NASA's had a spacecraft orbiting the moon since 2009. My responsibility is to make sure that we get the observations, that we have the funding from NASA headquarters, that we have the ability to do the, the research program that we've proposed to do. And so there's the great joy of working with the, the instrument teams, working with the scientists, and working with NASA headquarters to communicate all of the amazing things that we get to do. At Goddard, I also help manage a research lab of about 30 planetary scientists. And so part of that is making sure that that group has the resources that they need to get the job done. And then independently, I do my own research. Um, I have several colleagues who I work with closely at Goddard, and we are trying to use every available bit of information about the moon, whether it's remote sensing data, compositions from samples, models to piece together the, the wonderful geologic history of the moon to kind of unravel its story. So I'm a science manager, I'm a science doer, and a fan of, of all things lunar. And so that, that keeps me quite busy <laughs> when during the workday. I can imagine, because the last time we spoke online, uh, you were trying to get your bits and pieces together for basically funding for the next stages of uh, what the LRO is going to be doing. And we're doing the same thing right now, as a matter of fact. We are right in the midst of the, the last lap, if you will in uh, proposing the next three-year extension of LRO that would take us from September of 2022 through September of 2025. And so we actually are presenting our case in a few weeks, and hopefully we'll hear a, a good result back from, from NASA headquarters uh, in a few months that, yep, we get the green light to go ahead, uh, full steam ahead, and continue LRO's continuing mission at the moon. I'd imagine that LRO is going to be a very important tool to use with the, the lead up to the Artemis missions. Absolutely. You know, there's the two halves of LRO right now. There's the data that we've collected from today back to 2009. So we have this incredible archive of data, images, topography, compositions, radiation environment, you know, volatile detections. We have this archive and there's the data that we collect going forward. And so part of what LRO is going to be doing is providing this data to say, okay, where, where should we go? What should we ask the crew members to do when they get there? Where should we go that's safe? And then when we have missions on the lunar surface, whether it's a crewed mission or a, rob a robotic mission, well, what's the context? What's the environment that they actually landed in? 
So, you know, if they land on the surface and we can see them, we can see exactly where they landed. We can put down to, you know, better than a meter exactly where on the moon they are and understand the context of the samples they collect, the measurements they make on the surface. So there's the support of identifying the landing site and then the support of well, what can we do from orbit while we have missions on the surface of the moon, whether it be with humans or, or robotic missions. I mean, it's an incredibly exciting time because we will, in the next year, start having robotic missions, small robotic missions sent by, by NASA, sent by uh, commercial partners to the lunar surface. Um, and then eventually by 2025, human missions, crewed missions to the surface of the moon as well. And so you know, we're in this very unique position to support that, but also get science out of those experiments as well. You know, I think back to Apollo. I mean, Apollo was this incredible era of lunar exploration, just exploration period. But the orbital missions preceded the, the Apollo missions. Of course, you had the command module orbiting around taking data during the, the landed portion, but then the command module would leave. And so really it was only one mission, Apollo 12, you had Explorer 35 orbiting the moon around the same time, and so there were some coincident observations between the two, but you never were able to kind of pull the levers of both the science advances you make on the surface with contemporaneous observations from orbit. And so we're going to be at this really, I think, important point where we'll be able to do both for a period of time, and I think that's, that's really exciting and also hopefully a template for, for future exploration of how we should be doing things going forward. Well, I know the last time we talked, you said that LRO is going to have its own limited amount of fuel and so forth. So you say it's ready to go for three more years. How much longer is the LRO expected to be able to go? That, that's a great question. Um, ultimately, we're getting very creative of how to extend the fuel on LRO. We're in this incredibly hyper fuel efficient mode, and we're looking for ways to eke out and spare every gram of fuel effectively. Right now, our projected out-of-fuel date is April of 2027. Now, how do we make that projection? Well, we say, well, here's how we've been using fuel recently, so we project that going forward. So if those projections are inaccurate, either too high or too low, of course, that end date will be off. But if we, for instance, end up uh, using less fuel, of course, that adds the possibility of fuel life on the other end. Now, again, we're using a spacecraft now that's been at the moon for since 2009. So any day, something can break. We're fortunate that we know our spacecraft better than just about any other object, mechanical object in the solar system. So when things have occurred on the spacecraft, we've been able to fix them, of course, remotely. It's like anybody who owns a, a vintage car. You know all of the tricks to make it work. You know all of the things to just, okay, you know, if you turn the engine on and have the radio on and the wipers on at the same time, it's not going to work. So you do it this way and you get going. So we know our spacecraft like the back of our hand. And so we're in a position now where we can operate our spacecraft in as efficient a manner, but also at the same time getting science out of it. You know, if we stop doing science observations, if we stopped pointing off Nader directly, you know, we normally are looking straight down, but we like to look off to the sides. If we did all of these things, we could extend our life, but we're, we're a science mission. So at our heart is spent maximizing the science that we get out of LRO. But eventually we're going to have to start making those sorts of decisions saying, well, okay, if we don't do this observation, that buys us a month on the other end. And maybe that's a, a trade that we have to make. But for now, our priority is, is, is getting the most science out of, out of LRO and, and we're still doing it. And uh, I'll say it's a little nerve wracking because we're now, we know how precious a resource we have, how important this vintage car is. And so now it's, it's like getting the keys to your, your grandfather's car, this classic. And you think, oh boy, I, I better not mess it up. <laughs>
You mentioned also that 2022 is, is quite a good year for the moon in respect because there's a lot of anniversaries and all kinds of things going on. So what have we got coming up? In terms of anniversaries, there's two big anniversaries this year, in my humble opinion. Well, there's actually, let me say there's three anniversaries. There's the annual anniversary of Ellerose launch in June. That's always a, a, a tremendous celebration. So this will be our 13th year since launch. We're, <laughs> Ellero becomes a teenager this year. That's a little terrifying. <laughs> we also are marking the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 and 17 missions. It's always nice to mark these anniversaries. There's always a little bit of melancholy saying, well, we mark these anniversaries knowing that <laughs> this year will be 50 years since humans set foot on the moon. But you know, for me, a little bit of that sadness is twinged with the idea that, hey, in the not too distant future, we're going to be celebrating the 21st century's first human landing on the moon, the Artemis program sending a crew to the surface of the South Pole. With those three main anniversaries, we, we kind of commemorate the science that came out of those Apollo missions, but also it gives us a good example, gives LRO a good example, say, we learned this from Apollo 16, we learned this from Apollo 17, and here's how that continues to influence the science that we do today. And so that's that's something that, that we, on the LRO side, always look forward to kind of um, marking those anniversaries and using it as an example of the kinds of things that uh, we, we continue to do. We also have, in the, the not-too-distant future, the first of these commercial lunar payload services missions to the moon, small robotic missions that are going to be getting experiments to the surface. And one thing that we're focused on is, okay, again, finding the safe landing sites so that they are successful missions, but then saying, okay, well, while those missions are operating on the surface, what do we do in orbit that says, okay, we made this observation of the, the exosphere of the moon, the atmosphere of the moon at the time that this instrument was making the same measurement on the surface. Are they in agreement with each other? If they are, great. And if not, why? And, and, and understanding, again, what all of this is telling us about, about what's happening at the moon. In a couple months, the, the launch of the Artemis 1 mission, which will be the first test of the SLS system and, and the Orion spacecraft, which will, will be flying by the moon. And so there's an opportunity for LRO to have some company in lunar orbit. And uh, we're looking forward to some some coincident observations with them as well. So from my perspective on LRO, anytime we send anything to the moon, it's a chance for us, for LRO, to observe it, perhaps, and to make coincident observations, which really add value to both our mission and to the other missions, because then we are cross-comparing. Are we getting similar results or not. And if we aren't, we better understand why that is. And sometimes there's really good reasons why that's happening. And sometimes it's befuddling and we have to really work hard to understand why those differences are occurring. So would I be right in saying that a lot of the things that we'd learn from the Apollo program will be used quite heavily in getting us to the moon this time? A hundred percent. Now, to be clear, you know where we're planning on going with Artemis to the South Pole, the moon is a very different environment than the Apollo missions, the equatorial, the near side equatorial region of the moon. But that said, you know Apollo was trailblazing for us because they showed one that it could be done, it could be done well, and the kind of experiments, measurements, activities on the lunar surface, and what you get from them. So, for instance, in Apollo, each mission took core samples. They hammered in a a tube, basically, and removed a section up to, by Apollo's 15, 16, and 17, three meters deep of lunar regolith. We learned from those measurements, those experiments, that well, all the myriad of things that you get by those samples. We learned the importance of documenting where the samples come from. You think, okay, maybe that's an obvious thing, but not every mission did it, and every mission, every crew documented samples in different ways. So Apollo told us exactly what we, we think now gets the most science out of out of that precious time that we're on the lunar surface. Almost every Apollo mission collected special samples, samples that were sealed on the surface, that were curated specially. And now, over the last two years, NASA has, is running a program 
that allows for the first time scientists to study some of those previously untouched samples. And so you know, we're actually marking now kind of the, the next phase of sample return from Apollo by studying a core tube that was collected by Apollo 17 that's been untouched for effectively 50 years. And that, in concert with the planning for Artemis, gives us, again, good insight into, okay, well, here's what we did in Apollo. Did it work the way we thought it did? They sealed these samples on the surface. How well vacuum sealed were they? And how does that influence the design that we were going to try to, to implement for, for Artemis sample return as well? So all of the lessons of Apollo feed directly into the, the, the planning uh, that we have for Artemis, you know, down to yeah, getting the crew members excited about the geology that they're going to be doing on the lunar surface is really important. So it feeds into the training program that astronauts today are experiencing and that when we get to actually training the crew uh, for Artemis III, you know, the experience that they're going to have. And so, um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Apollo history. I consume it almost, you know, as a, as a, well, as a hobby for sure. But be, it feeds directly into my knowledge of saying, okay, well, here's what we did in Apollo. How will this apply to what we're doing now uh, for Artemis? And, and in almost every case, there's a, a one for one. This is the lesson. And here's what we're going to be doing differently or, you know, confirming our approach for Artemis. What goes into preserving the samples so that they'd be able to be used like 50 years on? I mean, it's a great question. You know, at the time, there was a recognition that the technology available in 1972 or 1971 was at, at that moment and that in the future, we'd have more advanced uh, capabilities. So so part of it is keeping the, the samples, first of all, dry. <laughs> you know, you know the, the sample lab at the Johnson Space Center is a clean room, hyper clean. The samples are kept sealed in gas canisters so that there's no interaction with oxygen to do any kind of chemistry to the to the samples and kept at a, at a, at a relatively uniform temperature. You don't want these things heating up or getting too cold. There are also samples that were collected that as soon as they were brought to the Johnson Space Center were put in freezers effectively. And so understanding the, the temperature histories, how these, these precious samples were curated and cared for. The other thing is just not touching them. You know, that's a very simple thing. There's this really interesting struggle that we go through with samples. And I, to be completely honest, I'm not a, a, a sample person. I don't use lunar samples directly. I use the data that comes from them. I ask questions of other people who use them, but I do not physically touch samples. But at the moment you, you touch a sample, you are contaminating, you're breathing on it. So keeping the samples as removed from the earth bubble as possible is, is really important. So that's why you know, most lunar samples are kept in, again, sealed containers, sealed workbenches that are under nitrogen gases. So it's just not interacting with anything else in the earth's atmosphere. But the moment they take those samples out, they crush them, they cut them, they send them to labs around the world, they're changing slightly, but of course it's incumbent on us to understand that change, but then get the information out of the sample. You learn nothing by having a moon rock sitting in a display case, not being studied. And so there is this struggle of pr preservation, but then eventually, and, and this is what's happening now, is saying, okay, let's crack these open and take a look. And what we've learned from the Apollo 17 sample that's being studied now is that they collected this incredible, again, you know, roughly meter or so deep sample of lunar regolith in an incredibly complicated geologic setting. And the little fragments that are in this core are, are telling us something that we, we never knew, the, the dynamics of this landslide that the Apollo 17 crew... I'm, I'm jumping around here, but the samples are this amazing 
window into the history of the moon. And we, for the first time, have this new chapter to read. And so the excitement around these new samples, which have never been studied, and not only not studied, but like literally never looked at. Human eyes have never seen these fragments. Since Jack Schmidt and Gene Cernan collected them at Station 3 at Apollo 17 in December 1972, they have been effectively removed from the world, archived, kept in the back of the the, the curation facility. And so now that we actually get to look at it, it's revealing the spectacular diversity of fragments and a really complicated geologic history that we really can only begin to understand. But the benefit, and I'm going on and on because this is so exciting, is that we have 50 <laughs> years of studying these samples. So today when we look at this brand new fresh sample, we bring 50 years of experience so that we know what to look for. The first measurement we're going to make, let's make it as pristine as possible because we know as more and more we work with it, any gases that are embedded in the fragments are going to be lost. Any volatiles, water that might be in it are going to be lost. So we now know what to do on day one. We know what to do on day two and three and four and so on. So we have this experience now of working with the samples that we bring to these, again, this brand new sample from Apollo 17. And that will directly feed into the types of things that we're going to be doing on Artemis. The preservation of the samples is kind of like uh, the f- flash flushing that they use in the food industry to keep things preserved. Mm-hmm. It, it seems very similar. Yeah, it, I mean, it, you, you, you know that you have, well, the assumption at the time, and it holds true, and whether it's for lunar samples or samples that come back from OSIRIS-REx or any other sample return mission, you know you have these things that have never been in the Earth atmosphere. And so you, know, you want to keep them as isolated from in, in their little bubble as much as possible. You know, by the time Apollo 17 came back for the moon, they had rock boxes, they had bags. One of the sample bags, the big bag that had rocks in it, was on the floor of the command module when they splashed it and it got water on it. You know, we know the challenges behind getting these things back, and it's a challenge. That's that's why it's really hard to do this. At every step, what we have to do to do that preservation, whether it's preserving food or lunar samples, you, you want to keep it in as pristine state as possible and understand that everything that you do, so when you flash freeze food, what is that doing to the taste, the quality? Well, when we, you know, isolate lunar samples in a vacuum um, and sh- you know have it come back through, uh, you know, splashdown. What does that do to core samples? What does that do to the fragments that we've brought back? And understanding every step from the moment it's collected to the moment it's unopened or uh, you know unsealed or opened at the Johnson Space Center or wherever. And so that when you get that meal on your dining room table or you get that fragment of lunar basalt in your research lab, you know exactly what's happened to it every step of the way. There's probably going to be differences from the samples that you're going to be checking out now to the samples that you've checked out before because of the time difference and other bits and pieces that uh, have been happening in, in its makeup. And sometimes, you know, for some studies, it doesn't matter. If you're just interested in the mineral composition, those minerals haven't changed. But if you're interested in the isotopic composition of gases trapped inside fragments or trapped inside basalts, its history really does matter. Has that fragment, that rock fragment, been studied 16 times? What kind of analyses have been done to those samples? Are there analyses that are destructive? or could potentially change the the makeup of the sample or are they you know non-destructive is it just a matter of taking the fragment putting it on a, a microscope stage or, or what have you and, and making a very passive measurement of it you know one of the things that happens in curation that's really important is first documentation okay here's exactly everything that we've done to every fragment making sure that its history is recorded but also understanding that you know for any small rock fragment that's been brought back cut it in half Half is then preserved, again, not in its pristine state, but kept 
and then half is then subdivided and further analyzed and sent out. And so that there's never a whole rock that's just lost. Like, oh, well, we've just studied everything. They've always done a very careful job of making sure that nothing is um, undoable. That makes sense is that you could always go back, well, let me study the other fragment from this rock, or let me study some more. You know, again, and even with, with very, very, very small fragments of, of lunar sample, we've been able to do quite a bit. And our ability to study smaller and smaller fragments has evolved incredibly in 50 years. So now you don't need, well, I need this massive rock to do this thing. No, I could just give me, you know, a one centimeter by one centimeter by one centimeter fragment, and I can do a whole host of geochemical analyses. So our, our ability to use what we have in innovative new ways is really remarkable. Again, I think those folks 50 years ago, the Apollo planners, recognized that the march of, of technology would, would go on and that we'd be able to do bigger and brighter things with the samples. But I can't imagine that they envisioned that we'd be looking for water and lunar samples and that we'd be as far along as we are. But here we are. The future is a strange and wonderful place. I know a, a lot of the Apollo astronauts weren't geologists. I know there was some that were, but obviously they would have had to have done some kind of geology studies before they actually went into space. Is it going to be more forward thinking to have a more diverse crew in that respect that are scientists in that discipline. Every Apollo astronaut, every moonwalker, and really every, actually every Apollo astronaut, whether they walk to the moon or not, receives some level of, of geology training. Early in the Apollo program, even the, the Gemini era astronauts would go out to wonderful field sites to just learn the fundamentals of, of geology. You know, the, the, the simple principles of what, you know, how do we identify samples we want to collect? How do we understand the terrains that we're exploring? All with the idea that eventually some of these astronauts would be going to the moon. And of course, as soon as they got selected for missions, their training evolved and got a little bit more detail. Apollo 11 astronauts effectively as a crew had one field expedition to go sample and just go through the, the, the simple processes of sampling the regolith, the surface. And that was fine. Apollo 11 had to show that you could do it. We did not need to make Neil and Buzz PhD level geologists. They were excellent crew. They brought back incredible samples, but we just needed them to, to do that job. And every subsequent crew got more and more in-depth geologic training. And as you said, by the time Apollo 17 came around, Jack Schmidt was a geologist and we sent him to the moon and he did a spectacular job. And that crew did a spectacular their job. For Artemis now, we have the Artemis astronauts, and in that ranks is our physicists, test pilots, and not, not that my opinion matters in any of this, but you know we want these crew members to be able to observe their surroundings and come up with a new hypothesis to test. We want them to think like geologists. Jack Schmidt walked on the moon 50 years ago, and he is still replaying that mission and reevaluating hypotheses that he made on the ground and in that subsequent time of 50 years. And, and ultimately, that's the benefit of sending a geologist to the moon, a scientist to the moon, is that they bring that level of thinking to the moon with them and on the return trip home so that it never leaves them. And so for Artemis, we want to have that same capability that then the moment they land on the surface, listen back to the, the, the words that Neil Armstrong says when he walks on the moon. It's almost like a powder. He's describing the regolith because that's what he was trained to do. He's telling the scientists on the ground, this is what it actually looks like up close and personal. We had never seen it up close and personal. Ranger, surveyor, all provided close-up images of the surface, but to actually see it with the human eyes and the human context tells us about the processes that get the surface to the way it is. And so he was making geologic observations the moment he stepped on the surface. And we want the, the next era of astronauts to do the same thing. Describe to us on the ground what they're seeing and use the information they're gathering in ways that we cannot do on the Earth to inform the, the types of samples that they collect, the places they're going to sample. And when they go to features that we pick out, go to this crater, go to this rock, go here, 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 and here, that they bring that knowledge with them and aren't just 
autonomous human robots. I've been told to collect the sample, so I'm going to do it. They said, well, we thought we wanted to collect this sample here, but there's little fragments of rock here, so I'm going to do that. Or, hey, what's that thing over there? Let's go check that out. We want them to bring that level of curiosity and inquisitiveness to the surface of the moon so that when they bring those samples back, we have work for the next 50 years to do in unraveling the stories that they're telling. That just seems so mind-blowing, the fact that these crews that will be going up in just a few years' time, 50-odd years from now, people will be working with the samples and whatever that they bring back, and that just seems amazing. I've got albums that were recorded 50 years ago by bands that people are still deconvolving. History is great that way, that people do things, they think, okay, I've done this thing, it's done, but it lives on, and, and it's our job with Artemis missions to preserve it. We better record where they are, what they've done. You know, a lot of the work to understand what Apollo did on the surface is saying, okay, they took this picture, we had the TV cameras on the last few missions, reconstructing those missions after the fact to understand exactly where specific samples came from and what they were doing. And we can use that knowledge of how important it is in Artemis to say, well, what can we do in Artemis to make that job so that 50 years from now when someone is studying a sample that was collected by an Artemis crew, even a little bit easier to know its context. And so we never can and we never should forget our place. I won't say in making history, we're not making history. The crew members will make the history. But when they make that history, there is this unintended consequence that science will live on forever with those samples. You know, Apollo samples will be studied for the rest of time. Artemis samples will be studied for the rest of time. You know, until we have shopping malls and gas stations on the lunar surface and people kind of are, you know, nonchalantly walking around the moon, maybe then that importance will dwindle. But for the time being, when it's really hard and challenging to get to the lunar surface and get samples back to Earth from the lunar surface, those fragments become treasure troves. Said that the previous missions were all more equatorial. This one is going to be more in the southern pole of the moon. Is that specifically because they want to try a different geological area of it? And what part did the LRO have in selecting that area, if any? So the south pole of the moon was identified as a target for, for Artemis for one primary reason, and that was resources, volatiles, water. The idea being, if we're going to go back to the moon, let's not go back for three-day missions over the span of effectively four years. Let's go back and let's stay. And let's make this a sustainable presence. And so one of the factors that makes anything sustainable is having resources available so that you don't have to bring all of the water with you, that you don't have to bring large batteries. And so the South Pole provides two valuable resources. One is hydrogen, possibly water, some version of oxygen and hydrogen mixed together that we could potentially use and harvest into fuel to stay, to go deeper into the solar system for water, for drinking and cooling and, and all the things that we know we need water for. And the second is a little bit of a nuance, but just like on the Earth, where if you go to the, above the Arctic or Antarctic Circle, in summertime, you get 
extended daylight or extended darkness, depending on the season. There are places near the pole, both poles of the moon, that get extended illumination. Now, not 100% illumination like the poles of the Earth, but maybe instead of 14 and a half days of darkness and 14 and a half days of, of sunlight, you get maybe 80% of a lunar day or a lunar year illuminated. So you have a little bit extra solar power. And so these places become little power stations, basically. And so there are places we know we can go and get resources. And so that's why the South Pole has become this target. It's the old adage about real estate. It's location, location, location. And that's true for the South Pole. Now, the added benefit scientifically is the South Pole is an incredible place. You have the rim of the largest impact crater known on the lunar surface, the South Pole Aiken Basin. You have craters that have never been illuminated by the sun. You have areas that have volatiles. You have areas that have never seen the Earth that are on the hemisphere of the moon away from the Earth. So you have this Earth quiet zone. So you have a myriad of scientific checkpoints that we could explore and go and, and touch. You know, the, the Artemis mission that lands at the South Pole of the Moon, the first Artemis mission, will be landing on a surface older than any terrain we've landed on with humans before. There's a possibility that the rocks that are brought back by the Artemis crews are going to be older than anything that was brought back by Apollo. So that will give us a window into what was not just happening 3 billion years ago or 4 billion years ago, but maybe 4.2 billion years ago, the very earliest history of the moon. And so there's a possibility that, again, <laughs> just as Apollo rewrote our understanding of the moon and the Earth and the rest of the solar system, that Artemis will add that chapter. <laughs> you know, there will be that record scratch moment after the first samples are returned from Artemis where we say, oh, we thought this for 50 years, but wait, um, maybe the moon is older or maybe this complexity factors in. And so I am so excited for that opportunity to be not, not proven wrong. Nothing that we've found so far is wrong. It's just incomplete. And so Artemis will help paint a more robust, complete picture of the moon and by connection of the Earth as well. You also said there about stepping stones. The moon is going to be a big part of that for moving on to other celestial bodies. Absolutely. I think for two main reasons. One, again, the possibility of fuel. Getting into space is challenging. It requires a lot of fuel to get away from the Earth. So if we can get to the moon and get fuel out of the lunar regolith to help propel us deeper into the solar system, all the better. Because that will facilitate going to Mars, going into deep space. Mars is going to be tricky. I'm excited for that, but we can be wrong with our scientific hypotheses, but we can't be wrong with our approach. And Artemis and our exploration of the moon will help hone that. I firmly believe that. And so the moon will be not only a resource stepping stone, but a scientific stepping stone. I don't think that we need to understand every facet of the moon before we go on to Mars, but we need to be smart about the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking on Mars. You know, simple sample return from Mars from one location will be great, but it has to be driven by a desire to know more about the complete history of Mars. And I think we have to be better educated about the complete history of the moon and how to study the moon and, and conduct experiments and just operate. You know, Mars is going to be hard because astronauts are going to be largely independent of mission control. The time delay will not allow for questions the crew asks to be effectively immediately answered by support staff on the on the Earth. They're on the frontier and they're going to have to answer and solve their problems, at least immediate problems, without intervention from, from the Earth. We can practice that on the moon. We can train for that on the moon. We know that if something goes wrong on the moon or near the moon, we can get back relatively quickly. Paul 13 told us that in even the most dire of circumstances, we can get home. We won't necessarily have the flexibility of having an Apollo 13 style event happen on a Mars mission because of the time involved. Certainly having Houston radio up in real time how to convert gas canisters to scrub CO2 out of the atmosphere, that will be challenging to do in real time. So the crew will have to learn how to work 
somewhat autonomously. Again, that's not not completely without the Earth in the loop, but they're going to almost be on their own. Um, and so we have to be prepared for that as well. Because that's one of the things that um, Gene Cernan was saying. He was quite angry about the fact that they were planning to go to Mars without going back to the moon at one stage. And he's like, we, we need to go back to the moon. We need to have just more than just footprints on the moon if we want to explore further. And, and it seems that the way he was thinking is what is coming to pass. I hope so. I mean, all of the Apollo astronauts, I think, feel that way. Well, no, I shouldn't say some astronauts feel like we should just go straight to Mars. If we're going to go to Mars, go straight to Mars. And look, it's very self-serving for me. I'm a lunar scientist. I'm a lunar enthusiast. So, of course, I'm going to say we should go back to the moon. But I really firmly do believe that before you try to summit K2 or Everest, you you should kind of make sure you can summit a smaller mountain. And not that the moon is any smaller mountain. There are plenty of challenges in in, in going to the moon. Don't get me wrong. But just as Apollo showed, they did not launch Apollo 11 with the first crewed mission to the moon. They did it stepwise. And I think that stepwise path of exploration, crawl, walk, run. We need to remind ourselves of, okay, let's go back to the moon. Let's figure out exactly how we want things to work and then give ourselves some more challenges by going on to Mars. You mentioned before about some of the things that you do is to help the other guys move forward when it comes to the the exploration. How in-depth would that possibly be for you? Time will tell. (laughs) We're living that right now. But, you know, what we're doing effectively today is saying, okay, you know, here's what we know right now. We have this data. You know, my big phrase for the last two years has been, we have to listen to the moon. The moon is telling us everything we need to know about where to go and what to do when we get there. We just have to be smart enough to look and listen to it. And the way we do that is by analyzing the data that we have in hand from LRO and the data that we continue to collect from it. And so one of the jobs that I have accumulated is, okay, here's the best data that we have for the South Pole, for these landing sites that we may be visiting right now. We're getting to version control issues because in real time, we're generating new data. We're adding our insight. And so making sure that the people who need to know, give me the best topographic map of these locations. In some places, we have to make it. In some places, we have to find it. But we need to make sure that they're using that latest and greatest version of the data. And so... Part of what I'm doing is trying to make sure that everyone is working off of the same data set. Apollo had the benefit that, I mean, there was Earth-based observations, there was robotic observations from Lunar Orbiter, there was Apollo observations from any previous mission, but it was a fairly finite data set. We now have, as I said before, this incredible volume of data from LRO and just harvesting it, knowing where to look, how to access it, is not trivial. And I have the benefit of having spent many years doing it. So for me, it's, oh, you want an image or multiple images of a particular location on the moon? Give me 20 minutes and I'll get that for you. Whereas someone who's never looked at it, it could take hours or they would just throw throw their hands up in, in frustration. And so data wrangling, <laughs> for lack of a better word, is one of the, the more challenging, but I think for me rewarding because then you get insight into the moon. And like I said before, the moon is telling us everything we need to know. We just have to know what are the limitations of the data. And you cannot get that answer you're asking. How hard is the lunar surface? A picture may not tell you that answer. Hey, but guess what? We have Apollo experience from that. Let's bring to fold not just the data we have from the last 13 years, but from the last 50 or 53 years and use all of that information together. You know, it would be very easy just to look at LRO data in a bubble, but it exists in this grander bubble that includes everything going back to surveyor and ranger and Earth-based observations as well. And so I think synthesizing all that we know about the moon, again, from orbital data, from surface data, from models, is something that I think I can bring to bear on helping support our future exploration. 
I know the Chinese agency have got a rover on the far side. You hear talk of other plans from other agencies to try and get stuff on the moon as well. Do you think these agencies are going to work together at some point for the science? So, you know, right now, you know, there's, there's this uh, effort NASA is, is part of called the Artemis Accords, where we do that. We know we can't do what we want to do at the moon alone. Again, I, I talk about sustainability. Part of me wants to recreate Apollo, but we don't want this to be six missions and we're done. We want this to live on, and, and one way for it to, to continue is to have large-scale international buy-in. The International Space Station is a very good example of that. And I think the Artemis Accords, again, this agreement of, of multiple nations, of multiple space agencies to work together towards those common goals is the only path forward. If we have big plan. We want to send humans to, the, to Mars. I don't really think we can do that alone. But when we bring the, the talent of the entire globe together to do that, we'll be in a much better position. You know, while there is competition to get to the moon, competition's healthy. And ultimately, we've learned that, you know, multiple countries have now returned samples from the moon, the U.S., the Soviet Union, China. And by sharing what we've learned from those samples, there's an expression, rising tide floats all boats. Multi-nation collaboration lifts science. It sounds like kindergarten, but it works the same at the frontier of science as well. When we share, we improve, we learn, and we move forward. I mean, you, you look at the, the, some of the things that are happening at the moment with things like James Webb. You've got ESA, you've got the Canadian Space Agency, you've got NASA, all of these universities all working together, and that is what they can produce, and it's just amazing. Well, I say amazing, we don't know yet, but... (laughs) The promise of amazing is there. There's an expression I was reminded of, you know, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go as a group. We want to go far, and so we have to do that in, in partnership. Yeah, again, I don't want to disparage Apollo at all. Apollo was effectively a U.S.-led program. We had international collaboration in some of the science experiments, but it was a U.S. program, and we were very successful. And then it ended because priorities changed. But when you go as a globe, <laughs> when it's a global effort, that global push can get you further. I went to the National Space Centre here in, in the UK, and uh, I went with, loaded with a load of questions from school kids. And one of the questions was, how many countries have a space agency? And I was told that it'd be easier to ask how many countries don't, don't yeah. have a space agency. And you know, let me ask you, why is that? No matter where in the world you are, first of all, you can see the moon, you can see space, you can see the wonders of space, it inspires you. So it is a, a human endeavor. Nations all around the globe have contributed to missions. People everywhere in every corner, except for the three countries that didn't cover Apollo, participated remotely. Well, now we don't want it just to be remote participation. We want it to be intimate participation from around the world because this is humanity going out there, going to the moon and going beyond. And so when you have students in every corner of the world who firmly believe that they can participate, they can be part of it, and through their home country's space agency or by participating with NASA, that will help it be sustainable as well, because everyone in the globe will be pulling for it and uh, and participate. So looking beyond LRO, because we, we talked earlier that it's, well, like any spacecraft, it's going to run out of fuel. Is there a replacement for LRO in the works, or what are they going to do with that? That's a great question. So, you know, actually just a few days ago here now, there was a, a meeting of scientists to define that. What, what do we want to do going forward? What does the next lunar orbiting mission look like? Now, there are other lunar orbiting missions coming. Shorter-lived missions, Lunar Trailblazer, Ice Cube, uh, Ice Mapper, CubeSats. 
So it's not that, that we haven't planned for, well, what's the next science that we want to do at the moon? But I think the question then becomes, do we really want to do bigger, longer-lived missions? LRO has shown that if you stay at the moon for a long time, you learn more than just a one- or two-year mission. And so the science community has to make that case of, well, what do you get? It can't just be, well, we'll just send a mission there and figure it out. What is the science justification for a long-lived mission? I believe LRO has made that justification, and so we're defining it. There are other orbiting missions that are being planned to be sent to the moon, um, not necessarily replacing LRO, but adding... <laughs> we've been there for 13 years. The science of what we want to understand on the moon has evolved, and so the kinds of questions, the kinds of instruments we want to send has changed as well. And so one of the things that we need to define is what does that next generation lunar orbiting mission look like? Is it a huge, larger than LRO mission? Is it multiple small missions? And again, depending on the science case you want to make and do, the type of mission you send there is going to, is going to change. LRO was sent to the moon. We had Laddie. We had Grail. We had Elcross, of course, as well. What kind of orbit do you need to have? Do you need to get high-resolution imaging? Does it need to be a low orbit? Does, all of those knobs you can twist and turn to define your mission. And so now it's it's on us, it's on the science community to define, well, what does this next era of lunar orbital exploration look like? And a number of my colleagues, friends, have been thinking about it for a number of years. So again, there's no guarantee. Headquarters will not just say, oh, of course, here's the next mission, you get to go do this. We have to come up with the, the scientific rationale for what it will look like um, and why we need it, why the data we have right now doesn't answer everything. And of course, that's, that's easy. We know the uncertainties. We know what we don't know. It's just a matter of packaging it in a, in a digestible and achievable manner. And with the technology that we have now compared to when the LRO was originally launched, there can be some incredible science done. Absolutely. I mean, you know, sensors have evolved in the 15 years since the LRO payloads, or, you know, even more than that since the payloads were defined. But the types of science, okay, what can we do for understanding the exosphere? You know, we sent um, the uh, the LADEE mission to the moon, and it was an equatorial orbit, and it helped understand the exosphere of the moon. But we know the poles are this unique environment, so let's send a mission that, again, investigates the polar environment remotely as well, again, following on to the, the myriad of discoveries that we've made uh, with LRO. So it's a matter of, you know, again, yes, the instrumentation has improved, the questions have improved, and our understanding, while it has evolved, we're still confused about things, and so, you know, we have lots of questions. We're never going to run out of questions. It's just a matter of, of, again, implementing a mission that's achievable, that answers those questions, and, and raises others as well. Now, the last time we spoke, Noah, you were involved with International Observe the Moon Nights. That's right. And uh, you did a fantastic uh, speech on there, and there was a lot of imagery that was provided by LRO on there, and it was fascinating to see because it was almost 3D in its build-up, and it was mind-blowing to see. Thank you. I mean, you know, now International Observe the Moon Night, I think we now just call it Observe the Moon Night. The internationals assumed. It's a global event. Again, we talked about the reach of this. No matter where you are, you can be in any corner of the Earth and see the moon and have a connection with the moon. We've had Observe the Moon Night now for, this will be our 13th year, October 1st of 2022. We've had participation on every continent. We have folks in Antarctica who participate. We have folks in almost every country in the world have hosted or participated in International Observe the Moon Night. Moon.nasa.gov. You go there and all of the information you need of how to participate is there. You know, now we're, we're not just mapping the moon in three dimensions. We're mapping the moon in four dimensions, incidentally. Time. International Observe the Moon Night is as long as LRO has been at the moon. And now we have time of this program and we have time of LRO so we can see changes. 
So our reach, our communication about the moon has evolved in 13 years, just as our science and our understanding of the moon has evolved in 13 years. Really, it's observe the moon day now. I mean, my goodness, this becomes, again, this global event that, again, brings people together to just look at the moon, which is the most important thing. The moon is accessible. And as the moon and its position in the sky and its appearance, as its phases its change, your interaction with it, your experience with it, is, is, it changes as well. And that's just that's so cool. And it, you don't need a special telescope. You can just use your naked eye. You can take pictures with your camera phone. You can take pictures with the most advanced telescope in the world. Or you can send missions to the moon. At the end of the day, you're looking at an object that has been a partner with the Earth for over 4 billion years. Is effectively, uh, I call it the eighth continent of the Earth. It's an extension of us. You know, it's a place that we have been with humans and we're going back to with humans. And it's just beautiful. Certainly is. And that is the beauty of it, is the fact that anyone, anywhere, at any one time, can see it at the same time, near enough. I mean, obviously, depending on what hemisphere you're on. But that is the beauty of it, and that's what makes Observe the Moon Night so simple to grasp. You know, again, you don't need special tools. You don't need to be in a special position. Okay, oh, you know, it's not like watching a solar eclipse, special glasses, paths. Go out and look at the moon. If it's clear, go out. If it's cloudy that night, go out the next night and every night after that. You know, I always encourage people to look at the moon every opportunity they have and build a relationship with the moon. Not just once, but over days, weeks, months, and then years, and then it becomes a lifetime passion of, okay, where is the moon? Okay, yeah. And then being able to say, okay, tonight the moon is going to be here, here. Maybe you set a reminder on your phone. Maybe you look. But cognizantly always having the moon part of your experience your you know whether it's your daily routine your weekly routine to me it's comforting you know i look for the moon in the sky it's there great phew i have a job (laughs) (laughs) but then it's a reminder that okay i'm looking at it and people all over the hemisphere and effectively like you said all over the world have the same experience it's a shared experience and it's wonderful noah You've been on the on the show now. Uh, this will be your third time coming on uh, TGP Nominal. <laughs> if you were talking in the scope of soccer, <laughs> that would be a hat trick, uh, which means you would have kept the game ball. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we would like to make you, if you would like, to be one of our honorary crew members. I would be honored. Um, I don't get asked to join other teams very often, uh, so I would be delighted to to participate in it. And let me, let me thank you, you know, talking about space and, and communicating to the world as you do what we're doing, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions for space and space exploration is really important. And that's another part that makes this era somewhat different than than the Apollo era is, yes, you could turn on the TV and see Patrick Moore and see James Burke or see Walter Cronkite and get excited about it. But that only happened during the missions. James Burke went off and did a great job of communicating. Patrick Moore went off, did a great job communicating. Carl Sagan has done that. But you fill this gap in making it a conversation. It doesn't just happen once, shot, 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 special, miniseries, boom, boom, boom. It's going on all the time. And so I would be honored to join your august crew of merry pranksters <laughs> we would send you one of our mission patches like i've got here all i ask in return is when you receive it if you could take a photograph of yourself so that we can put you on our honorary crew no, member no no, no 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 hold on you are forgetting something mark i am maybe a 90 minute drive <laughs> from goddard space center 
I think it would have much more of an impact for me to, to deliver that patch personally. I think we can arrange that. Um, I think that's a, that's a date. Let's just say that much. I think we can, right. we can make that happen. And, and over the last two years, our occupation of Goddard has evolved and we're, we're slowly ramping up on-site presence. So, you know, the Goddard of the future will be a little different than the Goddard of the past. The stuff is still there. You know, the, the labs are still working. The things that we're building are still happening. You know, we're still developing hardware. And so, you know, part of my future excitement of returning to Goddard is to see what this brave new in-person working environment is, but also then to share that with, with you, John, or with anyone else, because it's our agency. It's not just, it's not a place I work. It's all of ours. And uh, I would love to do that. Sounds good. I pinch myself all the time. I'll be honest. Every day I'm like, oh, I get, oh, that's right. I get to do this. That's pretty cool. I'd love to do it. I'd love to have you and, and show you around and reintroduce myself to Goddard and and, uh, and become a member of your crew. Are you not at Goddard though? And when do you mean reintroduce yourself? I'm in my, well, I'm, I'm at Goddard. I'm in my basement. I've been in my basement for two years now. Uh, <laughs> well, so fair, I'm at yeah, Goddard. So have I. Same here. Same here. <laughs> so, so I'm at Goddard. I'm not at Goddard every day anymore. Um, but uh, so I need to remind myself where the, the, the coffee shops are and the, you know, all of the, the the, the, uh, all of the, the hidden gems of, of our, our fair space center. I know, it doesn't even have to be a Goddard. Just being able to hand it to you would be cool enough. Ah, we'll get it to Goddard. It's all right. All the, the future is looking bright. Okay. Sounds good. Awesome. I mean, chatting with someone like you is amazing because when I was a kid, NASA was something that wasn't approachable, especially being on, on this side of the pond. But now, I never would have thought that I would be talking with somebody who works at NASA about the different projects that are going on out there. When I was a kid, there was two things I wanted to do in life. One was either be an astronaut. Through health issues, I knew that wasn't going to happen. The other was to get into broadcasting. So doing what I do, or doing what we do here, is, is part of a dream, really. Again, I tell students this all the time. Uh, NASA is astronauts and scientists and gen engineers and artists and financiers and computer scientists and graphic designers and writers and managers and, 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 and. For students who, kids or adults who love NASA, the tentacles of NASA are, are many and are widely distributed. And there's internships for students, there's opportunities to get involved. And so it's not just rocket scientists and astronauts, it's geologists and chemists and biologists and all of the other things that I listed that make what NASA does so special because it is a big tent to do all the things that we want to do. And it requires the, the workforce that we have, the excellent workforce that we have to get it all done. Since I've been podcasting, the space family, as as I call it, has been so accommodating. It's an amazing family out there. That's everybody. I mean, that's all the different agencies and the companies and the academics and everything else that goes along with it just really want to talk about it. They really do. It's the greatest job in the world. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's the, or not even in the world, in the universe. It's the greatest. I mean, it really is this, this incredible thing. I never thought I'd get to work for NASA as a kid, and here I am. Dreams come true. You just have to be tenacious and a little stubborn sometimes. Well, no, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on board. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, in your case this morning. <laughs> Hopefully we can catch up again. I mean, obviously you're going to be catching up with John in the near future. You are always welcome to come on board DGP Nominal. Raise the flag and I'll be here. I, I, I enjoy it and thank you. And again, thank you for all you do. It's, it's an honor. 
It's going to be really good, isn't it, John, when uh, eventually you get over to Goddard and meet up with Noah? I hope so. I mean, it's not like it's that far away. We've been wanting to do this for a while. I think we were going to do it a couple of years ago, weren't we? When Well, I say a couple of years ago. It was just after the eclipse, I think. Yeah, I think so. If you want to see the video from our chat with Noah, it has been uploaded to our YouTube channel. Apologies for the sync issues in places. That was a Skype glitch. There isn't much on the channel at the moment, but we're hoping to add a few more videos and interesting content over the next few months. The video will also be featured on UK Astronomy's Astronomy in April as of April the 12th. Greetings, fellow Earthlings. This is Richard Garriott, the 483rd person to leave our home planet and the first second generation American astronaut. If like me, you long to explore the cosmos, take heart. While only a few of the over 18,000 NASA applicants will fly with NASA, there are many new avenues opening up for us to use. So the challenge I lay before you is to plan and execute some of these bold new businesses which will lead humanity into being a multi-planet species. See you on Mars, and happy Yuri's Night. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialize in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, Ross, it's been awesome having you on board for our Euros Night podcast. Always look forward to it, and it gets me writing down and learning everything that's going on in the sky as well. That's it, because even though you know a fair bit about astronomy, you're always learning. When you're creating new stuff to to go into the sky guides, you're learning new stuff as you go along. Yeah, it makes me read all the magazines, so I, I do have to do a shout-out to Astronomy Now, Sky at Night, All About Space. Their stuff really helps me, because I read all the books... And I choose the bits that I think are cool and interesting. So I, I have to say to them, thank you so much for doing those books because they are brilliant and they really do help me <laughs> piece together what's going on in the skies. As you know, I'm a little bit biased towards All About Space magazine, <laughs> mainly because I know the guys there. Um, and big props up to their uh, chief editor, Gemma Lavender, who uh, is broadening her horizons because she's getting involved in a lot more things now. I really need to get her on the show, actually. She'd be really interesting to talk to. But yeah, those magazines are essential. All the different uh, astronomy magazines are essential for what you do. Yeah, well, we're not sponsored by any of them, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if you would like to well yeah that would be lovely <laughs> <laughs> don't know which one it was but I know I bought a whole host when I first ever started and it was me reading that Jupiter was up in one of those magazines that got me out there with my first little telescope to see the planet you know and they inspired me by reading their magazines for me to then go out and do this so we're all here helping each other and learning so, John, the next time we speak, we'll be in full Eurovision mode for the Garbage Pods Eurovision show. Well, you know what? At least we're not going to be in American Song Contest mode. 
<laughs> which strangely the uh, the final of the uh, American Song Contest is actually the week of the semi-finals of Eurovision why well I, I guess they, I guess they figure people over here probably don't care about Eurovision as much plus they geo-block the semi-finals which is just wonderful of them I say sarcastically <laughs> But I think this year is going to be interesting. Uh, I think there's going to be some good tracks this year. So the full list is up now? Uh, yes, it is. I'm just waiting for the album to be readily downloadable. I'm assuming it might be already done by now, to be honest. Might be, might be. But I still can't believe that you forwarded me that link. <laughs> and that's what I call Eurovision. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with my 2016 Eurovision soundtrack. I was very surprised when I saw it as well. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> now, before we go, I'd like to thank again Loretta Whitesides and Noah Petro for taking time out to come on board, and Steve Dix from Liquid Management for giving us permission to use Public Service Broadcasting's Gagarin for our Yuri's Night podcast theme. If you haven't heard Public Service Broadcasting's Race for Space album, go check it out. It is absolutely awesome. Right, that's the end of our Yuri's Night podcast for 2022, which leaves us to say thanks for listening, stay safe, and... Rock the planet! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Just got it. Station. This is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.